Saying goodbye is difficult, especially when we fear it may be the last time. People just don't know how to say it. How do you say it? What if I say something wrong? This hour, we'll be talking about how to say goodbye at the end of life and about the important elements of a good goodbye that can give a sense of peace and ongoing connection long after the person has died. People get a great sense of relief and maybe even joy in telling those they love most how they want to be remembered or what kinds of things those who survive can do to pay tribute or to carry the spirit of the person who's dying along with them. The things that I would recommend to a family facing the untimely death of a parent, honestly, I would recommend them to any loving parent. That's all coming up from Safe Space Radio. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Over the next hour, we'll be talking about the challenge of saying goodbye at the end of life. When we're facing the loss of someone we love, there's a lot of pressure to get it right. We may fear that whatever happens, whatever we say or don't say, will stay with us forever. The stakes feel high, and yet we don't talk much about goodbyes. We don't get a lot of guidance about these important conversations. Many of us have learned to avoid the topic of death entirely. And yet saying goodbye may be a way to feel more connected to the person long after they're gone. Paradoxically, a goodbye has the power to create and affirm ongoing connection if you summon up your courage to say it. Over the next hour, we'll hear from people facing their own death as well as people who've experienced the loss of a family member or friend. Many of our stories are from people who knew they or a loved one was dying and who had a chance to say an intentional, in-person goodbye. Not all of us get this opportunity. We'll hear from someone who lost a loved one to COVID-19, something that hundreds of thousands of us around the globe are experiencing. But there are ways to say goodbye when you can't be there in person, as well as ways to say goodbye after a person has died. It might feel intense at first, but stay with us. The rewards of saying a good goodbye last for a lifetime. In this first part of the show, we'll explore how people who are dying can say goodbye to loved ones, particularly how parents can say goodbye to children of any age. Saying a good goodbye doesn't only support the person who is dying. It can also be a way to take care of the people who survive. Dr. Paula Rausch is a child psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital. She helps families make the most of the time they have together. The truth is that something could happen to any of us. Most of us don't have the awareness that time is as precious as it really is. So the things that I would recommend to a family facing potentially the untimely death of a parent, I would recommend them to any loving parent. There's a metaphor that when a parent dies, a library dies with them, and the library of all their memories is gone. I often say to parents, who are the people that have known you best at different times in your life? Can you reach out to those people and say, if things don't go how I hope with this illness, would you be willing to have a cup of coffee with my child and tell them the stories about what we did together, the ways that you know me? We refer to that as your living legacy. Who are the people who know you best and know you from different times and hold those stories? I asked Dr. Rausch how to minimize the negative impact that the death of a parent has on a child. One of the key things is as much as possible to be including children in the conversation right along. One of the things that interferes with coping well is being shocked. If a child experiences a hardship or adversity, feeling alone and helpless and hopeless and confused, 
then it makes the world a scarier place. Then it's much more likely that that adversity or hardship is going to get integrated as a trauma. If a child experiences adversity feeling well-loved and included in the conversations, able to be curious, able to ask those questions, that gets integrated as a challenge for the child. The five things that Dr. Rausch says make loss traumatic for children. Feeling alone, helpless, hopeless, confused, and shocked apply to all of us going through loss. The more we can reach out for support, find ways to be helpful, identify what we can hope for, and ask the questions we need to for clarity, the better we will do in the long process of grief that follows. I don't know what your definition of psychological health is, but I think mine is the ability to bear your losses and continue to invest in the future. Children who lose a parent have lost something enormous, and life has changed, but they also have bright futures and can thrive. There are so many ways to say goodbye. Believing there is a perfect goodbye puts a lot of pressure on people during an already difficult time. Dr. Rausch points out that for kids, and all of us, there is no right way to say goodbye. I'm not sure that children very often literally say goodbye. They squeeze a hand, they whisper something. That's more the conveying of, I love you now and I'll love you forever and I'll carry you around inside me. After that first phase of feeling like somebody ripped out your insides and that this crucial part of you is missing, that torn up emotion turns into grateful sadness and you go from having part of you missing to missing someone. And that's the evolution of, of grief. Mary Townsend was a dear friend of mine who wanted to leave her family the kind of legacy that Dr. Rausch talks about. Six weeks before she died from cancer in 2018, she asked for my help to record a goodbye for her husband and three grown children. She and her husband gave me permission to share this recording. You go into automatic shock when you hear that you could have months to live. Your mind shuts down and numbs you. You know, it sort of opens bit by bit, you know, like an aperture of a camera. So you can see the big picture, you know, the aperture opens click by click and week by week as you can take more. It's life's great unknown. I'm not able to walk much anymore and I'm, I'm a huge walker. Five miles is an easy walk for me. And now I can barely walk to the mailbox. I've lost so much weight so fast and so much muscle and but my daughter and I went for a walk on the beach, and, and I used to walk it several times a week, back and forth. But we just walked to a bench and sat and watched the birds and the lobster boats and, you know, remarked on the beauty. I have to take the days that I have remaining and enjoy those little gifts I felt like I enjoyed them before, but maybe not to the same extent that I do now. I mean, I do now tremendously because they're so limited, but I can also feel that I'm less and less a part of this world. There are so many last times that I'm looking at. This may be the last time I speak to this person or I'm saying goodbye to this world. I knew I wanted to be a mom from the minute I knew what a mom was. It's been my most fulfilling adventure in so many ways. It's been the hardest, the thing I've failed at most in many ways. I've made many mistakes, but raising three children to be good additions to this world, you know, that's what I would say 
I'm proudest of. And, you know, they've had to really step up and help take care of me. And it's given me the opportunity to see them in action and sort of a caregiver action. I asked Mary if there were life lessons that she really wanted to share with her kids. This seems like a given, but always be kind. Think about that as you make your way out in your day. You know, really try and make connections, even momentary connections, people you won't see again in your life. I'm a firm believer that we're on earth to connect with one another. That's where the good stuff is. And that's where our humanness is. Some would say that that's that's what God is, is the connection that two people find with each other. That's where we find God. You will be granted, I would assume, a special intelligence after my passing because of the pain that I'm sure it will cause. But the periods in our lives when we're in the most pain, I think, grant us the greatest opportunity for growth. If we let it, and if we let ourselves go there, And I think this will give you a greater depth. And in that depth, you will be able to help others and you'll see the world differently. It will change your life. I want to tell my family, thank you. I've loved all of you really more than you can imagine. I will be with you in spirit whenever you need me. And just know how much I love you all. My thanks to Mary Townsend, who died in June 2018. Sitting with Mary during our conversation, I could see her physically summoning up her courage to keep going when it felt too hard. She helped me see that saying goodbye can create more space for an ongoing relationship with someone after death. I've just put in uh, tomatoes. So my new personal revised schedule is I want to make it until we get a tomato crop. That's Ian Gibson, an old friend of mine from high school, who passed away in 2014. In the last months of his life, Ian spoke with me about how his two kids were helping him say goodbye. My son is nine. He has certain character traits of judgment and understanding of other people and a kind of wisdom of that interpersonal nature that I don't have. He said to me, well, if you don't have that much time, we should make sure that we have fun. We went fishing the other week and (laughs) went on a horse ride with my daughter that just absolutely destroyed my backside because I'm so skinny. I'm all bones there. But that was a lot of fun. I'm picturing you, you know, taking your daughter horseback riding And I'm imagining, like, having to manage my own grief the whole time, thinking about, is this the last time I'm ever going to do it? Do you feel like you have to kind of consciously put those thoughts aside? It is definitely the last time I'm getting on a horse. My butt is... (laughs) So, that one, no, I'm not... (laughs) A, it's the last time. B, no grief at all. Um... Tell your kids, I'll always be there. I'll always be looking down at you from heaven, is the classic formulation. And I've always felt uncomfortable saying that to my kids because I don't want to tell them something which I don't think is so. While Ian didn't believe his spirit would be with his children in a literal sense, he did believe he would continue to have a presence in their lives. 
Your relationship with me will not die because I die. Your relationship with me is something that you own, and it will continue to live, and it can change, continue to change, because you will grow. Even to a degree, I can continue to participate in this relationship, just filtered through you, in the sense that you know me extremely well, and we can have conversations, and probably will do for years to come, in which you do a really good job of anticipating what I would have said and say it, say it to yourself, and then respond to it in a way that's helpful to you, and so that relationship won't die. In facing their death so openly, Mary and Ian showed enormous courage. Many of us struggle with talking about death so directly. My adopted grandfather, who I called Uncle Jim, died when he was 94. I went to visit him a few months before he died and was saddened to see how frail he'd become. But we didn't talk about the fact that he was nearing the end of his life. Death felt like the elephant in the room. When it was time for me to leave for the airport, Uncle Jim was so exhausted, he stayed in his bed, rather than walking me to the door. I walked to his door alone, but then I stopped. I knew this would probably be the last time I'd see him. It felt wrong to just leave without somehow acknowledging it, but I felt afraid. I didn't want to frighten him, or offend him, or make him feel weak. I didn't know if it was my place to suggest that he was dying. But the thought of missing the chance to say goodbye was worse. So I summoned up my courage and I walked back to his bedroom. I sat down on his bed and said, I'm afraid that this is the last time I'm going to see you. He lifted his head from the pillow and looked straight into my eyes. He said, Anne, I don't know where I'm going, but wherever it is, you will always be a part of me. I was bowled over. I had always admired him so much. I had never imagined that I could matter to him like that. I told him that he would also always be a part of me, that I would carry him with me for the rest of my life. And then I kissed him goodbye and left. I've always felt like he gave me a treasure, the sense that saying goodbye can feel so good, even when it's so sad. My connection to him still feels so alive. Because Mary and Ian and Uncle Jim could acknowledge their mortality and say goodbye, They each left behind a legacy of love, gratitude, and connection for their families that will last for years. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear from friends and family members of people who've died and the intentional way that they, too, approach the process of saying goodbye. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio. We're exploring the courage it takes to say goodbye and the elements of a good goodbye that family members and friends can hold on to long after a death. John McCone is a hospice nurse in Down East Maine. He says families feel a lot of pressure to not miss the actual moment of death. Family members who live out of state often say to John, You know, when it looks like they're dying, let me know, and I'll come back. And I tell them, that's not the time to say what you need to say. Now's the time. Make the trip. And then if you don't happen to be there on the day that they draw their last breath, that's okay. It's not essential. John's personal experience inspired him to become a hospice nurse. Ten years ago, his mother received care from the same agency he now works for. When John realized she was dying, he brought her to live with him so he could be her caregiver. I mean, I'm not a religious person, but it kind of comes back to washing someone's feet, right? If you're willing to be there for them and to do the dirty work, that's an expression of love. That's how I felt like I really said goodbye to my mother was just by being there and doing that stuff. What did you bring from that into your work as a hospice nurse? Not being afraid of that intimacy, not being afraid to acknowledge where we are in that moment. 
the end of someone's life is one of the most important times in their life and in the life of their family. And I feel it's really important to acknowledge that. I don't walk on eggshells. I don't dance around the elephant in the room. I'm very direct with my patients and with my families. It opens a door to them when you acknowledge where we are and you give them space and you give them permission to talk about the things that are really on their minds. When we think about preparing to say goodbye, there can be a lot of pressure to get it exactly right, to say the right things, or as John mentioned, to be there at the actual moment of death. But now, during the COVID-19 pandemic, it can be impossible to be present with someone who's dying. A few years ago, my mother and I were talking about my father's death. I told her how much it had meant to me that we were together when he died, holding his hands and telling him we loved him. She paused, took a deep breath, and said, Anne, will you forgive me if I prefer to die alone? I was startled, but not actually surprised. My mother is a lifelong introvert. I took a deep breath and said, Yes, I do forgive you. But Mom, will you forgive me if I do everything in my power to be there? She said yes, and we both laughed. Talking openly ahead of time is a way to learn what is most important to the person dying. It's a conversation that can prevent a lot of guilt and self-judgment. Looking back on that conversation with my mother, I feel grateful. If I do miss being there for her death, I'll feel very sad, but I won't feel guilty. I'll feel that she was able to have the death she wanted. Talking about it with her made me feel like she was loving and taking care of my future self. In a strange way, this moment itself felt like a beautiful goodbye. We were holding the differences between us so tenderly. Now, when I reflect on this conversation from the perspective of the coronavirus pandemic, I see what a difference it makes when the person dying has an element of choice. It may be that many people feel more comfortable being alone at the moment of death, but feel very differently if that aloneness is imposed. And for the survivor, that loss is tremendous. Many parts of the U.S. and all of Canada have enacted death with dignity laws, sometimes called medical aid in dying. These laws allow a person with a terminal diagnosis to obtain medication that will provide a peaceful death. The laws require assessment by two physicians and give patients some agency over their own death. They take the medicine at home themselves, close to their loved ones, and choose the time when they're ready. This gives everyone involved a clear time frame for saying goodbye. Melissa Stern is a healthcare administrator in Northern California. She works with hospice and also runs a medical aid in dying program for terminally ill patients. Those final days of someone's life, they're super precious. They're super concentrated. There's a lot that's really generative and rich and time kind of operates differently at the end of life. Giving someone a sense of how that unfolds, of what that might be like, really allows you to make the most of that time. And I think that's important for the person who's dying. And I think for the family, it's priceless. And what are some of the things that are important to people to convey when they say goodbye? I love you. I forgive you. You taught me something. I want you to remember me this way. That part, how I want you to remember me, as I've been with more people who've died, I've seen that be really important. For Melissa, helping people who were dying was mostly a professional concern. Her best friend, Tom, changed that. He was a school teacher, and he had this very regal bearing. His posture was amazing. His word choice was super inspiring and precise. He was so dignified and graceful. He was just amazing to be around. Two years ago, Tom noticed a swollen lymph node. Because he was HIV positive, his doctor decided to get a biopsy. 
Tom was diagnosed with a rare form of lymphoma, a cancer of the immune system. He underwent multiple rounds of chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant, but he kept getting worse. Tom started to wonder about the medical aid and dying option, but he wanted the input of his loved ones before he ultimately made the decision. He gathered his family and me and another close friend. We all came together and a hospice nurse came to the house. We were all invited to ask whatever questions we had of Tom and of the nurse. It happened in a garden. It was really beautiful. And then after the nurse left, Tom went into the house with his father and had a long conversation about faith because they had a strong faith. After those discussions, he came back into the garden and told us what he had decided. I mean, what a decision. What an incredible decision. He was 49 years old. It was so clearly right for him. He just had a sense of calm and peace and confidence. It was so comforting to see his clarity. Melissa helped Tom reach out to old friends and welcomed visitors coming to California to say their goodbyes. Then, when he was ready, Tom named a date and time. He asked us to arrange for myself and three other friends and a sister and a niece to be there. He asked a pastor that he cared about if she was willing to come, and she did. And we were around his bed. There was a hymn he wanted us to sing. All of that was laid out, and the medication arrived, and I prepared that for him. That was one of my roles. There were two pills that he was going to take first. They were anti-nauseals. An hour later, he would take the lethal medication that needed to be prepared into a slurry, something for him to drink. When he took those anti-nauseals, we all had a glass of champagne, and we made a toast He said, if anyone has anything left unsaid, now is your chance. Several of the people in the room told him how they were going to remember him. He was the person that I told the things that I didn't like to say out loud to anyone else, and I was that for him too. So I guess I wanted him to know that I saw all of him and that I would... I would remember him not just for the beauty and the dignity, but I would remember him for dark days holding each other and sharing. There's something about someone letting you witness their shame and their vulnerability and the things they don't like about themselves that binds you and it makes you feel precious. We sang Abide With Me, and he asked us to sing it again, and he sang with us. We held the glass, and he drank the slurry through a straw, and then he sent us out of the room. He didn't want anyone in the room when he actually died. I sat outside in the garden. A hospice nurse came at that time. After 30 minutes, yeah, it was just a quick 30 minutes, he told us that Tom had had died. The experience was so much more beautiful than I would have imagined and so much less sad less tragic. It was a glorious, profound time. Those last hours were were beautiful. I miss the friend I got to be to him. There's this saying goodbye and this losing someone. You lose them and you lose the you you were with them. And I am trying to be the me that I was with Tom, with other friendships and other relationships. Tom
Tom's courage in planning his own death is an example for saying goodbye in any situation, not just at the end of life. Even after a breakup or when a friend moves away, we can take time to tell each other what we will always remember about them. Identifying the memories we will honor and carry with us, even in complicated relationships, can help us to make peace with change and stay open to the future. We'll hear now from writer and teacher Catherine Murray. Catherine offers writing workshops to help people navigate their grief, something she knows intimately from the loss of her six-year-old son, John. I didn't think I would survive. Before he died, I thought, oh my God, if he dies, I will not survive. What helped me to survive was knowing people who would let me cry a lot and talk about him a lot and cry a lot. I think you have to walk through the fire of the pain in order to heal. As a mother, saying goodbye meant navigating her own feelings while also taking care of Chan's. I was sitting with him and um, I started to cry, which I rarely did. You know, usually I was able to kind of contain it. He was so skinny and, you know, weak, and I had my head sort of against his chest and he put his little skinny arm around my head. And I was crying, and in my mind, the words that kept repeating were, please, please don't go, don't leave me. Please, you know, I don't want to lose you. I couldn't say that, you know. So instead, I think I just said, I just love you so much. You know, I just love you so much. He was so sweet, you know. He said, it's good to cry, Mama. It's good to cry. You can cry anytime you want with me. It's really important to cry. those last 24 hours, there were different stages of the goodbye. I could just feel him drifting farther and farther away. I had this vision that came to me of deep, deep, vast space, cosmos, galaxies, stars. I had this really clear sense, this knowing that wherever he was going was going to be a good place. I said to him, Honey, it's okay. Wherever you're going, it's okay. It's going to be good. I know it's going to be good. After John's death, Catherine struggled to let herself feel her grief. At first, she was in too much pain to really let in the reality of what had happened. One way that one of my very wise and sensitive counselors asked me to look at it was she said, say, bye, Chan. Say it, bye, Chan. Just to say those words just for one or two seconds at a time was so painful that it did begin the healthy grieving process, the fruitful grieving process. And I did just say it over and over to myself, to him, over and over. And then I found writing to be really helpful. I've always been someone who's kept a journal. I think what it allowed me to do was to let the very grief-stricken, sad person who was in deep pain express herself through the writing. And there was a kind of audience you know, myself being the audience, but a different part of me as the audience. And I think that that different part of me is sort of the wise observer part, the witness. And I think by writing, I was actually cultivating that wise observer, that compassionate listener to myself. I feel like I was actually unwittingly cultivating compassion for my grief and for my healing path. In addition to writing in her journal, Catherine wrote letters to Chan and poetry. This is called Yellow Cloak. The other day, I was driving down a little street in the neighborhood. A shortcut, I thought, in my endless quest to save a minute or two for something. I don't know what. And I saw a tree standing, branches upraised, entirely bare. At its base around it in a spreading circle was its cloak of yellow. 
like a woman's garment dropped suddenly that had floated so quickly to the floor. The leaves, all the same yellow, were bright and soft, but completely, hopelessly disconnected from their mother, now naked and suddenly bereft. In the rushing, frantic kids-to-pick-up moment when I saw that tree, I thought, that's how I felt when my son died. Arms lifted, naked. What happened? Where is the warmth and beauty that I always had, where the wind whispered and the light shimmered, where the tiny, infinite movements against my skin interpreted the air and darkness? Now I am only bare and bony, bark wet and cold in the wind and rain. Why am I still standing with all of me exposed and winter coming? I was very intentional about, as the grief rose up, like letting those waves come up and really letting myself feel the pain because I, I knew that that was healing me slowly. I just had the daily proof, you know, that I would be miserable, overwhelmed, unable to get out of bed, unable to be kind to my children, whatever it was. And then I would sit down and cry with a friend or cry by myself or even write in my journal and, you know, really kind of process, bring to complete awareness the pain. And I felt better. Then I would emerge from those moments feeling just a tiny bit more at peace and a tiny bit more able to slug through the rest of the hour or the day. Catherine eventually wrote and published a memoir about Chan called Now You See the Sky. So Chan died 15 years ago. How are you doing now? Now I'm, I'm amazed at how much joy I can feel. And I feel like it's due to, to all the hard work that I put in healing and now using what I've learned to help other people. I'm delighted with my life. I'm delighted with my now grown children, and I never thought that this would be me 15 years later. I hope that people will know that things will get better, that, you know, whatever grief they're going through, it's not going to last forever, and it does change. I don't believe that time heals all. I don't believe that that just happens on its own. I think you have to be willing to turn toward the pain and be very compassionate with yourself as you do so. We've been exploring how to say goodbye to the people we love, both as the person nearing the end of life and as the one who survives the loss. We've heard from people who were able to express their love and gratitude and to care for and comfort loved ones in their final days. But some goodbyes are more complicated. How do we say goodbye to someone we've had a really difficult relationship with? Or what if we miss the chance to say goodbye at all? After a break, we'll talk about these more complicated goodbyes. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward, and this is Safe Space Radio. This hour, we're talking about the challenges and benefits of saying goodbye at the end of life. Saying a good goodbye can help ease the pain of loss and support the mental health of those who survive. In this last part of the show, we'll explore complicated goodbyes. Saying goodbye to a person we've had a difficult relationship with. Saying goodbye when we can't be physically present. And saying goodbye after someone has died. The imminent death of a parent can stir up so many unresolved feelings. There are often old wounds or misunderstandings that we wish we could resolve or feel more at peace with inside. I spoke with social worker and parent educator Sarah McLaughlin about the complicated relationship she had with the man who'd been like a stepfather to her. He loved music, and he was very funny. He had a very fiery temper. He 
could also be very kind. So a lot of duality there. And he also changed a lot over the years. I knew him from the time I was practically a toddler, you know, a preschooler. You know, I'm in my late 40s now, so we had a long amount of time in relationship. When Sarah found out he was dying, she wanted to visit him and say goodbye in person. Was there anything in your mind that you were hoping could get resolved or acknowledged that you knew would sort of help you going forward? Well, we had sort of been down that road already. He was scary and mean and abusive and not a good father figure at the time when he was a father to us. He had admitted that and acknowledged that and apologized for that previous to his becoming sick. During Sarah's visit, he wanted to check in about it one last time. I think that part of him was still hopeful that it hadn't been as bad as maybe he thought it had been. <laughs> he asked me straightforwardly, did the fun make up for the not fun? And I just very honestly and directly said, no, it did not. So it felt good to just be honest about that. Not that I had been dishonest, but he had not asked me that straightforwardly before. I was like, no, we were really scared of you. It was not good. We had come a long way in our relationship. I knew that he wanted to know the truth. I trusted that if he asked, he wanted to know. I just feel like if you're not acknowledging the harm, that's not actually forgiveness. If you're actually going to forgive, you have to like take it out of the drawer unfold it, hold it up to the light. This is a thing that happened. We're going to have to look at it and be with it in order to forgive it. I know that he loved me. He was brave enough to face his wrongdoing, and I thanked him for that. That was a gift to me. For me, there's something about feeling spacious enough to love him even in all of his humanness that feels comforting. Relationships are messy. If, unlike Sarah, we're unable to resolve or even acknowledge the painful aspects of a relationship with someone while they're alive, it can feel like we're stuck with resentment and suffering that we don't know what to do with. But there are ways to say goodbye to someone after they've died. We can write them letters, telling them the things we wish we could have said while they were living. Just putting those feelings into words can be helpful. Whether we're expressing love or hurt, or both. If we need to heal from an old wound, there is another novel approach I learned from writer and performer Eve Ensler. In her book, The Apology, she writes herself the letter of apology that she always needed, but never got, from her father who had abused her and died years ago. Writing to herself in his voice, she acknowledges each of the ways he harmed her, and gives herself the apology she needs. Writing a letter of apology to ourselves, one that we've needed to hear for a long time, is something any of us can do, and it can be clarifying and liberating. Mary McCann's relationship with her mother had always been complicated. One of my first memories is of her not being there when I woke up from a nap. And I feel like she was always leaving. She left home when I was 13. My grandmother lived with us. Her mother lived with us and my father. There was no real discussion about where she had gone. You know, in the early 60s, it was a broken family. It was divorced. Nobody was divorced. And so much shame and so much hiding. I often became silent because I felt like I had a story that was hard to share. One day, my grandmother said, your mother is going to come to take you all for a ride. 
I had mixed feelings about it. I was pretty mad that she had left. She pulled up in a pink Cadillac convertible with her hair dyed a different color (laughs) and piled high on her head. The 13-year-old me was intrigued. Who is this woman? There were long gaps when we didn't see her, times when I really needed her and she really, really wasn't there. I spent a lifetime grieving my mother, for a long time being very angry and really not welcoming a relationship with her. I think it's hard to forgive, really forgive. Some things were unforgivable to that girl that I was. I felt it was really important to release myself from that reservoir of anger that had lived in me for a long time and resentment. Because no matter what, she was my mother. Maybe a word I can rest more comfortably in is acceptance. She was doing what she could. You know, I think if she could have stayed, she would have. But acceptance for me doesn't mean that I don't acknowledge, that I don't feel the pain of what happened. When Mary's mother got older, she moved to an assisted living facility. When things changed around COVID and people had to stay in their room, the emotional part of that was so difficult. She was isolated. Since they weren't allowed to visit their mother, Mary and her sisters called her often on FaceTime. They could see that she was getting sick. She seemed to start failing really quickly. We worried about sending her to an emergency room. But it just seemed like the only right thing to do. At the hospital, Mary's mother tested positive for COVID. One young nurse, I think she was in her 20s, so lovely. She had asked specifically to be with the COVID patients because she saw that they were dying alone. I felt like there was compassionate, loving care there. Every time I talked to her over those last couple of weeks as she was sick, the most important thing was to tell her that I loved her. It was almost the only thing to say. She always said, I love you too. I deeply wish that I could have been present with my mother and held her hand. We had one FaceTime visit with her on the Saturday before she died. She died on a Monday. She was lying on her side. She looked so frightened and I think a little angry. I think she couldn't understand why she was there alone. It was hard. I wasn't even sure she knew who I was. And I addressed the nurse and I said, can you ask my mother if she knows who I am? The nurse asked her. And she said, it's Mary Ellen. Of course I know who she is. Those were the last words that I heard her speak. I can still hear those words. I thought I had said goodbye to her before she died. So I felt I grieved my mother for so long, I actually might not feel very much grief when she dies. Her death taught me that that was not true. After somebody has died, it's a different grief. A word came to my mind, lamentation. Lamentation evokes that deep, howl of loss from within. I think I'm still saying goodbye. I think I'll be saying goodbye to her until I'm not here. I always felt a little outside the community of mothers and daughters. But when she died, I realized the love had been there all along the love that I felt for my mother and the deep connection that exists between a mother and a daughter. I felt a sense of belonging to the community of all of us 
you know, as part of being a human being to lose the people we love. I felt like it wasn't just my grief. The grief is not mine. That loss is not mine. It's ours. Saying goodbye takes courage. Our guests offered many recommendations for how to say goodbye and reminded us that there is no such thing as a perfect goodbye. It is often messy and important things may go unsaid. If you can, talk openly about dying. Don't avoid conversations about death or try to protect people from the reality of death. If you feel afraid or don't know how to start, let someone know what they've taught you. Thank them for what they've given you. Let them know what you will always remember about them. It's never too early to start telling people what they mean to you. Say the things you need to say now. Don't wait. But don't worry if you don't know exactly what to say. Acts of love and service also speak volumes. And even after death, there are ways to say goodbye that can give you peace and a sense of closure. Talk to the person, write them letters, remind yourself of the things you want to remember about them, or write yourself a letter from them with all the things you needed to hear. We can't prevent death, but we can find new things to hope for. Don't be afraid of your grief. Keep choosing to feel it and you will emerge feeling more alive. I'd like to close with the words of Mary McCann. In the end, you just want to know that you've told the person that you love them. So do it. Visit us at safespaceradio.com where you can listen to my full interview with Dr. Paula Rausch and get other resources and tips about how to say goodbye. You can also subscribe to stay connected to us and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Safe Space Radio. Many thanks to our senior producer, Mary Quintus, program director and editor, Dana Glass, our editorial advisors, Jim Russell, Loring and Louise Conant, Jim Rao, Sarah Lennon, Lane Gregory, David Moltz, Thierry Ndebahagamwe, Alice Spencer, and Libby Gordon, and our summer intern, Sophie McNulty. Thanks, too, to all our donors who made this show possible. I'm Dr. Ann Hallward. Thanks for listening.